He's Achilles Nazuri. I'm Reggie Bailey. This is Books of Pop Culture. Achilles, how you feeling? Hey, man, you know, blessed and highly flavored, you know, uh, looking forward to it's currently the weekend. So looking forward to enjoying the rest of my day with some relaxation. I might even smoke a cigar today. I know the people have I ain't smoked a cigar and I, I didn't even have locks the last time I smoked a cigar. <laughs> so that's at least half a year almost because I'm almost at four months. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. Nah, shout out to the forthcoming cigar smoking. Yeah, you know, you're yeah. you're hearing this more than likely on a Thursday. We are recording on the weekend. You gotta figure out it's one or two days. You take your guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, man. Thank you to the fellowship, first and last time viewers, first and last time listeners, and everyone in between, because you could be anywhere in the world right now, but you are here with us, and that is something we do not take lightly, so thank you sincerely. Um, There are myriad places in which books of pop culture can be engaged with. Um, YouTube is one of them. Uh, There's Spotify, there's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and more places, right? And on those places, you can do things that really help us out, which is subscribe. You can follow, you can like, you can comment, you can download, you can leave a review about us, and you can share with your physical and digital community. So, And everyone knows what digital community is, right? We might not know what a physical is. So when we say physical, we mean your friends, your family. Your associates, the person who is your frenemy. You could tell everybody, like, like maybe you and your frenemy will become friends because y'all have books of pop culture in common, right? Random so present, person on the bus, everything. Hey, <laughs> present present books of pop culture to frenemies, strangers, and everyone outside of that and in between that. All right. Um, another thing you could present to them and yourself is our Patreon. Um, our Patreon community um is is, is amazing. And when I said thank you to the fellowship, that's who I was referring to. Um, and it just keeps getting better. We have a Discord now. We have a Discord mm. and a Patreon, so you can catch up with us anytime. We have all these different rooms, and it's curated really well. You know, master curation in the Discord. Uh, make sure you you join the community and come kick it with us. Talk books with us. Talk pop culture with us. We also do bonus episodes in the Patreon, right? We talk about books and much more, whatever's on our mind, right? And that's every month. Every month is guaranteed. You get bonus content. You get to participate in the Discord. And depending on the tier in which you join, you get early access to the episode. So you might mm-hmm. be hearing this like way before it come out. And we pre-record. So you might be hearing another one the day after this. Who knows, right? Join the Patreon and you may find out. Um, yes. So Achilles, we have a special guest, special talented guest today, man. Yes, it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be fun here. Yeah. Okay. He grew up in London, and Word. his uh his his debut novel was long listed for the Booker Prize and the Dylan Thomas Prize upon its initial release in the UK in 2020. He's actually been kind of touring in North America a little bit. He was just out in um as of this recording, he was just out in Vancouver not too long ago. You know, in Canada, um, doing some work still around this book. Um, mm. and. BAPC is now part of the tour that Gabriel Krause is on. Uh, mm. We'll be speaking to him. He is our special guest. We'll be talking to Gabriel about who they was. And that'll yes. be after this quick break. Gabriel, thank you again for, for being here. You know, we, we was talking a little bit off the air. This has been a long time coming. 
So yes, it's it's yeah. a it's a complete pleasure. Um, you know, I wanted to ask just off top. I know um you over here in the in the in the western hemisphere, right? <laughs> By the time this come out, who who knows where you'll be at? But right now, for real, for this real. is this is where you are, man. I just wanted to ask how how's it been? Yo, I love it. I love it in New York, you know. It's like a second home for me. Like the the energy of the place, the energy of the city is what I love the most, isn't it? And it's the easiest city in terms of cities that I've been to, it's the easiest city to adapt to as a Londoner. Like it's a very, very similar vibe, isn't it? Very, very similar vibe. You know, no one's friendly, like everything's busy, everything's intense, like everyone's trying to get their money, like everyone's on the hustle, isn't it? It's like London. It's the same vibe, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, what's what's interesting about that? I know this won't be a London versus New York pod, right? <laughs> I always say that, like I can't stand New York, yo. Say that because again. I can't stand New York. You can't. And stand and, and and shout out to New Yorkers, right? You know, I I know plenty of them. I, I don't went to I went to school, and it was mad New Yorkers that went there. Mad New Yorkers on Bookstagram and all that. So I ain't trying to say y'all bad, but like. I'm I'm the type I told Achilles this in one of our first conversations. I mm. like to hit the scene and leave the scene. I don't <laughs> like living in the scene. You yeah, know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. So like New York is a place that I love to like go for a few hours, but it's yeah. like after that few hours, I'm literally like, yo, I gotta yeah, get out of here. Like I, yeah. I like it, I like to live in the place where it's slow for sure. Oh, for real. Yeah, yeah. No. and kind of secluded. Like I yeah. might be one of those dudes, like uh, like living in Wyoming one day or something. Who knows? Oh man! <laughs> Yo, it's no lie though. Like when when it's time for retirement, you get me. I want to be in the countryside with like a, a beautiful view and shit, and like forests and everything. But right now, like this is what keeps me alive. You know that intensity, that big city intensity, man. I love it, yeah. innit? and especially yeah. when you're living in the city, like. Like, the way that I'm living here is, like, I'm not living like a tourist in it, you know? I know some people, I knew some people who came from England and and who've lived here from, from London, actually, who've lived here for about seven, eight years. And first time I went to see them, when I went to check them here, I was disappointed because their entire friendship circle is really, like, other British people living in New York, other, mm. other European expats. And I was like, yo, fuck that. How are you here for, like, eight years and you don't know New Yorkers? Yo, bruv, after like one month, two months, I'm rolling with like Haitian dudes in Flatbush and shit, innit? Like they're showing me real New York, like real mm -hmm. New York, not not New York, like, you know, go and take photos of yourself. TV New York. Building yeah. and all that bullshit. Yeah, yeah, you know? And that's like a different vibe and a different energy. And I can see as well how a lot of people would not be able to hack the intensity of that. Like, because it's the same for people out of London in it when they come to London people from up north in England when they come to London for a weekend it's like they're overwhelmed by the intensity of the city the energy of the people in it there's there's a there's even I would say there's like a constant undertone of aggression in it but if you understand that if you're from that city and you get it it's like a language that you speak as well and you totally understand it you're you're in tune with it but if you are outside it's a proper shock to the system in it hmm. So my question is um, is is the easy one. How are you doing genuinely? And when we say genuinely, we mean like if you got a fart, let us know. You know what I'm saying? If if you'd rather be drunk right now, let us know. I mean, just how are you feeling for real, for real? Like, I'm feeling good. You know what? It's been a tiring year because like there's been a lot of things that I've been working on and I've been traveling a lot. 
and and that takes it out of you. I just came back from Vancouver last week, and I went to the Vancouver Writers Festival. There, you get me. <clears throat> so I'm a bit tired, but it's also like what I'm doing right now in terms of writing is what I've always wanted to do. So I don't feel in any way like that that fatigue that you get when you're also unhappy with the job you're doing or unhappy with the things you're doing. And it? it's more just like a physical fatigue from from too much traveling and and trying to do too much but at the same time I don't feel I'm doing enough I've got so many things that I want to do right now in it so um yeah I feel motivated man I feel good I feel alive you get me like there's there's nothing worse than than feeling like you're just doing things for the sake of existing in it without having a specific purpose in it so yeah I feel good man word word what you described is um what some of our guests, I want to say maybe it was Mecca, Jamila Sullivan, it was one of them who said mm-hmm. happily exhausted. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. What you described as being happily exhausted because, yes, you're tired, right? Yeah. But you're tired doing the thing that that is your calling, if you will, at least at the yeah. moment, right? The thing that you want to be doing. Um, And I, I like that when I heard it. And, and if it was someone else and you're listening um, I apologize, but I think it was Mecca. I think it was Mecca. Yeah, I think you're right on. Yeah. So um speaking of writing, this is this is one of my favorite questions. Um, what is or what are um the most important lesson and or lessons you've learned about the business of writing, right? And and before you answer that, I want to talk yes. about I guess the things that I have in mind when I ask that are the fact that your novel comes out in the UK in 2020, comes out here in 2021, you know, in 2022, you still, you know, doing work involved with your debut novel. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, just talking about the vibes and and, and all that that you were talking about with the festival that you mentioned earlier. Right. What are, I guess, some of the most important lessons you've learned about this business? Yo, I'm going to keep it 100 right now, yeah? The biggest thing that I've learned, yeah, the biggest thing that I've learned is that the publishing industry, yeah, just like other industries that are obsessed with money and commercialism and making money is fake as fuck. And a lot of writers, like, are full of shit and are boring people who try and identify themselves as interesting people by exaggerating either their sense of identity within the world of being writers or being creatives or being artists or people who basically take certain small human experiences and blow them up into the kind of center point of who they are. And what that does is it supersedes the the art of what they're creating as writers. And we, we're now in a, I believe that we're in a culture generally in the West like I'm speaking specifically based on my experience of the UK literary scene, but I think it's like something that's affected Western English literary scenes and the English language literary scenes, where we think more often now about the identity of the artist than the actual work in it. Mm. And there was a German philosopher called Heidegger who said that an artist should be like a doorway which destroys itself in the process of revealing the work of art behind it leaving behind only the work of art to be appreciated. And 
that point that he makes is about how when we approach a work of art, whether it's a work of literature, painting or whatever, the only thing that we should bear in mind is the work of art and the quality of it. Is this well written? Is this a beautiful painting? Not who is the artist, who's the writer. But because of commercialism and because of the way in which culture works right now, right now, there's an obsession with with kind of the identity of the artist and trying to and and not even the obsession with the identity because it's interesting the identity of an artist is always an interesting thing but it's the obsession with trying to weaponize or use i think weaponize is maybe the wrong term but to use the identity as a selling point or as a box ticking uh, basically as something which ticks boxes for people within the publishing industry to sell more books or to promote books or to promote literature in it and yo, trust me, trust me, this industry is mad fake. It's mad full of fake people. Like the value, the emphasis I'm now talking about within within the British publishing industry, the, the emphasis on what books are promoted and really celebrated heavily tend to be commercial. It's about what's going to sell the most copies. And what's going to sell the most copies is also always what's going to be the safest form of art. And it's not really art because art isn't about safety, you know, but it's what's going to be the safest. It's what's going to not take any risks. What's, what's not going to upset people. What's not going to challenge people. Because when I talk about risks as well, it's not just about writing shit that is potentially offensive, right? And upsetting and disturbing. It's also about writing shit that is seriously intellectually challenging. Like something mm. really intellectually challenging that takes a lot of mental like effort, a lot of cerebral effort to like engage with in terms of the concepts in terms of the ideas which are being presented because my book it's very easy to frame my book as just being about gang banging in northwest london innit? but as far as i'm concerned that's not what it's about as far as i'm concerned what my book is about it's a moral confrontation with the reader which is forcing the reader to examine whether their moral context and the moral system which they totally believe in as a real thing their concept of the values of good and evil, whether those are intrinsic to them as a human being or whether that's learned, whether that's created for them by their condition, whether that's created for them by their environment. Because as far as I'm concerned, the biggest message of who they was is that morality is relative to the level of danger in which you live, right? And that's a seriously heavy concept to get into that takes a lot of thought to engage with that idea, isn't it? So that's not something that ticks boxes for the literary industry and that is easy to sell, you know, and all that bullshit in it. So, yeah, like that was a bit of a tangent, but I think one of the biggest things I've I've learned from from this industry is that there's a lot of fake people within it and and there's a lot of writers who are full of shit and who basically really want to be liked and want everyone to, to like them and therefore will write in a safe way to make sure that that they just have everyone on their side. And I ain't trying to do that because that's not what art is about. Art is not about making friends or about being nice. Art is about provoking a grand emotion. And that emotion can also be a pure and good emotion, but you have to provoke it. You have to cause it. And by and to cause something, you have to just go for it head first. You cannot like, you know, you cannot make sure that everything is checked and like reasonably measured and and weighed up against, you know, the potential of upsetting someone or the potential of, like, uh, somebody not even understanding what you're trying to do, you know? Yeah. You, yeah. you said a lot, yeah. Ooh, you're going to love know, my first question. When, when, <laughs> I, 
Yeah, and and and, and I'll, I'll even say this too. Any tangents are welcome here. This is a podcast. Yeah, um, we're here to talk. We're here to get into it. So you know, no need to even acknowledge it. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and yeah. and I and I just like that the way you describe your book, right? You you include the reader in in the description, and and I like the the books that when I review it or reflect on it or whatever you want to say. I say, damn, this book made me complicit in something, right? Yeah. That maybe I would have thought I wasn't complicit in, you know? Yeah. Um, in and, and, and a, a statement that I've been running with for like the past year when it comes to literature is challenge me, don't coddle me. Yeah. Because I, I don't go to I, I I realize, um, and this is because of an episode that's probably gonna come out before yours, um, uh, that I do have a some comfort food now in, in the world of books. And that's sports books, right? Because I like basketball, right? But at the same token, I tend to lean into the work that does provoke, the work that does disturb, the work that does challenge me, you know? Um, And and, and what I don't want to, I don't want to say sports work can't challenge me because maybe I'll really like a player and they'll kind of shit on the player, you know? So maybe that will challenge me too. But the same token, um, I, I just love that answer. Um, I could yeah. go on. I could go into that I'm, for days. I'm thinking about what you're saying. I was just thinking the same thing. And I'm glad you kind of came around to that. I was like, I don't think there's nothing wrong with having that type of work. But I think something that uh, Gabriel was getting at, though, is is something that Morrison gets at, too. Right. This idea of remember we were talking about this when they we was like um, people will read a book. And because it's hard, like to kind of engage with it, they'll say that the book wasn't good. Yeah, and she was like, she was like, that's just reading, you know. So she's exactly. like, that's just reading, right? Yeah. And so I think for me, you know, I think my comfort, my comfort books would be, you know, my fantasy and my sci-fi, but I don't even like allow that to be out there as much, right? Because I'm more so interested in this work, right? Which is like the the real work of reading. It don't take a lot for me to slip into some some damn dragons, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I, I love yeah. that, right? You know what I'm saying? Um, but yeah, yeah, you said you said a whole lot. I, I I'm wondering too. This is something we've been talking about, me and Reggie. Um, and we 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 discussed it, but the difficulty of getting that art out there in that pure way. Um, you were touching on that in the um, I think the British literary scene when you were like they want this certain type of safe book, right? Mm-hmm. And not and again, like you said, not in the form of um you know something that's like um ultra violence right which is something i'm gonna get into later in one of my questions but like just in the sense of this is what we like right now and um you know i think that people are experiencing that everywhere um and i wonder i think it's creeping in the film too you know it's just yeah. it's been a lot of different mediums um but yeah i just wanted to kind of respond to both of y'all points there what i usually do here is ask a question about an epigraph that's usually placed at the front of a book but who yeah. they was does not have an epigraph at the beginning of the book but what you do do which i really liked is your your first chapter is actually like a part of a sentence and and that's a device that i hadn't seen you since uh chris stucks give my love to the savages right and i really enjoyed how you know your chapter title was a part of the first sentence that starts your work and i i think it did a good job of kind of creating um, shout out to our boy Mateo Scarapore, what he would call a hostage situation um, mm-hmm. when you're reading a yeah. work, right? Can you can you talk to us about that decision to start off your work 
right? With a chapter title that is the first sentence as well. Now the chapter title is is something that I, that someone says later in the chapter. Mm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Don't watch face. It's something that the the character says later in the chapter. It says don't watch face, man. Just don't watch face in it. Like, it starts in the middle of a sentence. And the reason it starts in the middle of a sentence is because it's supposed to feel as if you've walked into a room where I'm telling this story and I grab you by the front of your shirt or whatever and sit you down and it's like, boom, you're here now. Listen to this shit, innit? And you've got no choice and you're just here for the ride. You're in the moment, you know? It's like, it's to create that immediacy where you're not gradually introduced to the world, which would be a literary device, a carefully planned literary device, right? Because as soon as you start, when you're writing about real life, like the whole of who they was is 100% real, isn't it? The fictional aspects of it is how names are changed and certain certain little details are changed for legal protection, isn't it? Of myself, of people in the book, et cetera, et cetera. But everything that happens in that book really, really happened, isn't it? So the point is, is if I were to start creating literary devices of gradually leading the reader into this world, I wouldn't plunge them into it with the immediacy that they need to be plunged in because you're supposed to understand that this is a world that isn't accessible to normal people, to what we call civilians in it. Like, so there's no point in, in a gradual introduction. It's just like, boom, you're in the moment and you've got no choice. And it's supposed to have that, that breathless kind of relentless energy to it throughout as well, where you feel certain times like, you're struggling to breathe because of the intensity of what's going on and the relentlessness of, of you know, the way in which things unfold and, and the relentlessness, of course, of the violence as well, which is like a constant feature. Um, so that was that was my thinking behind starting it like that. And and also and also in a way, in a, in a strange way, it's like that was the first chapter I actually wrote of the book. I didn't write the book entirely in sequence the way that it's presented you know certain chapters i wrote when i felt like writing them and but the first chapter was the first chapter that i ever wrote of the book and i felt like there was no way for me to start it other than in the middle of a sentence you know so there's a book so while i'm reading your book it's making me think about another book this book is fiction right a clockwork orange yeah. Right. And I got this thing that I do where I don't read nothing about the book. I don't read the, the back of the blurb. It's partial because I'm lazy and also because I'd like to like have this experience and then kind of like go back through it. So um, uh, one reason I, I love literature is because your book provides this analysis of good and evil. Like you said earlier, through yours and Snoop's experiences and through the lenses, lenses of Nietzsche. Um, and, and A Clockwork Orange does the same thing with classical music and its main character, Alex. In your book, you center Nietzsche's The Genealogy of Morality, which posits this idea that Nietzsche makes this point that justice exists as a social restriction, like not just as a form of control, but an actual restriction of human nature, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and so that quote made me think about this quote that I mentioned earlier uh, in one of our other conversations about civilization, um, and, and I'm going to butcher the quote because I'm a quote killer, but basically the quote says that there, that this idea of civilization or like civilians actually doesn't carry the connotations that we try to put on it. It simply mm -hmm. means that the land has come under a certain military power. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean that the people are brought to some higher state of being. 
uh, but that they are now under certain rules and policies and a certain military rule. And so this concept of justice being not only a form of control, but a restriction of human nature becomes so much more interesting because I think your ecosystem shows a flowing of, of human nature that is settled on by itself. Yeah. Um, and the outside world that envelops it uh, and the folks that are there are confused about it, right? In terms of that outside world, uh, they have this warped understanding of it based on their beliefs and their experiences. 100, 100. And yeah, so we- when you, go ahead, go ahead. Treat it, they treat it as if like so there's always this concept of it as I don't know I don't know hundred percent about the the way it's reported in the media in New York for example although I'm sure they use the similar language but like in the UK and in London whenever there's gang violence it's always referred to as mindless violence or like if there's a if there's a shooting or something it's always called mindless violence right mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. or uh, or they call feuds petty feuds they call them petty feuds having been from an environment where there's like so i grew up in south kilburn for i spent 15 years of my life or more than 15 years of my life in south kilburn in it and there's been a constant rivalry between south kilburn and another area called mozart and that is anything but a petty feud like when bodies have dropped and people have like lost relatives like and and people want revenge because their brothers have been killed like their boys have been killed and everything that's anything but petty, right? But the only yeah. way media finds to, the only language the media finds to write about these things because they find it so horrific and so against their expectation and their desire, their idealization of what a society should be and their hopes for society, that the only way to deal with that is to denigrate it, to put it down and to frame it as something petty and mindless. Yo, when someone goes to do a ride out, and take revenge for something that happened to one of their people and, and go and do a shooting or stabbing or whatever, it's anything but mindless because they've put so much thought into that. They've been obsessing every night they go to sleep or they can't go to sleep because they're like, yo, I cannot let this shit slide. I need to get revenge. And there's a line in my book where I talk about how um, if you're nothing without your reputation, then violent revenge can be like salvation and deliverance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that the most important messages about revenge that it's like the concept and i totally understand it in normal society the concept of male pride is seen as something stupid because it can lead to self-destructive and violent behavior but in that environment where reputation is all that you have it's the only thing that defines you then yo you need to certain times i'm sure there's so many people who didn't want to ride out didn't want to commit violence but they know that if they don't take that step and they don't do that, then they suddenly become a nobody and they have to embrace a future of being nobody, having no respect, being nothing, being lower than a person, being lower than a somebody, you know. And those struggles are so specific to environment and specific to place and specific. And the environment, when I talk as well about environment, I don't just mean a physical environment of like the blocks in South Kilburn or the projects in New York or whatever. It's also a psychological environment. Mm -hmm. Once you start existing within this psychological environment in your head, it's the framework of how you see the world. It's the framework of how you understand the world. Mm-hmm. And what about justice is very interesting in terms of that quote, because what Nietzsche goes on to, to explain as well about justice and the law as a system is that justice is ultimately society's revenge against people who destabilize the equilibrium of society. So justice doesn't exist as a system to prevent for example, crime, the breaking mm-hmm. before it happens. No, yeah. it 
exists to punish people who commit the transgression of 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 daring basically to disobey the to, social parameters yeah and the equilibrium that's been established for us to completely believe in and be like yep this is the way to live etc etc you know so yeah yeah look first of all thank you for for, for just popping in there because i get the feeling you was just as excited as i was when you were hearing it as i was i was saying it but like so you know like so what the book does, right? Like you said, and, and what and what a clockwork orange does and what people miss when they have this surface level reading, right? Where they get lost in this idea of, um, and the reason I said ultraviolence because that's like a thing that Alex says, right? But this idea of like, like you said, like this, um, okay, that's hyper-masculinity when it's over there. But it's the same stuff when it's in a, when it's in a, um, in a, in a governmental room. Yeah. yeah right? Yeah. It's just a different ecosystem, and it's a different ecosystem, like you said, both physically and psychologically, right? And and another thing that just was like screaming at me throughout uh, the text, right? Yours specifically is our relationship with putting people places when they don't fit, right? Yeah. Whether it's whether it's you know Snoop's having having a relationship with that, uh, or whether it's mainly the in societies that Snoop finds himself in, right? Yeah. Whether it's him going in and out of uh, of the uni or him going in and out of prison, right? Yeah. In both places, there's just this this back and forth of trying to make these decisions um, where you where you where you're looking through it through a lens of philosophy, and that's all it really is. It's just a difference of philosophy. I think they like to say it's petty or godless. Is something else I was thinking about mm. uh, petty or godless um, uh, activity um, when it doesn't suit their ends. Yo, you know, uh, I'll say this quickly because you said godless. It's mad interesting. It just triggered a thought as well. You know, people talk about like gangbanging and all this, all this revenge shit as well as like godless. There's only, there's very few mandem on the roads here who are actually like evil people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very strong, very specific word, isn't it? There are people who are bad and they're on wickedness and that, but it doesn't mean they're actually intrinsically deep down inside actually evil people. When people say godless, yo, you gotta wonder why do so many gang members have crosses tattooed on them or things like only God can judge me, yeah, mm -hmm. or like yeah. prayers on their bodies because they put that shit on their body like it's form of like it's a form of protection because they know yeah. even though they're living a bad life, they're living a lawless life. They hope that God forgives them. That if if they get gunned down in the street, like you know, God will God will weigh up their sins and and what's in their hearts in it before mm -hmm. God makes that decision. You know, if you believe in God, so it's like yeah, trust me. It's like those those generalizations, those labels which are used within, particularly within the media, but also just by people who are except what I would call what I would define as moralists. The moralists mm -hmm. are like who are also the same people who would also have a problem with a book like mine because they'd be like, oh, it's a glorification of, I don't know, violence and it's a glorification of toxic masculinity, which also, by the way, is a label I completely don't agree with and don't believe in because these labels are so narrow and they they they're created to contain an entire history of human behavior and reduce them into this one term of toxic masculinity like there's no this is why like the other day on my instagram i saw like this this notification came up which was something about um creators are being oh something like creators are have safe words so that they can or, or yeah they, um, can, they can limit certain words for their safety 
That's it. Yeah, well, we, what, what do they call it, Reggie? Creators, yeah. Trigger words, trigger words, maybe. Trigger yeah, but I think, trigger, I think yeah. Instagram called it like the hidden words for creators, isn't it? Like, and I just looked at it, I was like, what the fuck? So I just posted, I just screenshotted it and posted it on my story and wrote creators are pussies then, isn't it? Because like, yo, if, if you need to hide some words for your safety, then like you're living in some mad safe environment. Yo, I'm when I was living in South Kilburn, I come out my block, yo, you don't know what is going to happen today. You don't know what's going to happen to you today, innit? Literally, you don't know what's going to happen to you today. I'm talking violence. I'm not talking like you don't know what's going to happen to you today. Like, you know, some seagull might fly over you and, and take your packet of crisps or some shit, innit? I'm talking some mad shit might happen to you, innit? So when I see stuff like this now, after living within that world and in that environment and knowing people still who live within that world and environment, I see some shit like that and I just laugh, innit? Like... It, it just I just find it quite ludicrous and everything is reduced into this one way of looking at things now everything is narrowed down into this singular perspective so when people talk about toxic masculinity for example in in relation to young men involved in crime they they're the same people who read Homer's Iliad right mm. and, and they'll read about the Greeks going to war with the Trojans and be like what a wonderful poem this is and what an epic work of Greek history this is but yo when Achilles gets told by his mum, if you go to war, you're going to die in battle, but your name will live forever. But if you stay at home, you'll live until you're 125 years old. You'll have children. You'll have grandchildren. You'll have great grandchildren. You'll have a peaceful, wonderful life, but no one will remember you after you're dead. Achilles doesn't think in one second. He says, I want my name. I want a short life and I want my name to live forever. That is the same shit that all these young G's are into. It's the same mentality. And that's not toxic. It's a certain version of masculinity. It's a masculinity that's drawn to danger, drawn to feeling alive by existing on the edge, even though the people within that know that by living on the edge, it might be their end. But they choose to embrace that shit. Because also it's mad patronising when people talk about gangs and crime and everything. It's mad patronising to frame it just within the the context of poverty because in south kilburn for example it's a small group of young men who are the gang who are the gang members in it who are doing the crime and everything everyone else who lives in the estate is hard-working people trapped in the struggle in it people who are facing like the deprivation of like economic hardship the societal unfairness of how people the class system works racism all these different things that all these pressures that exist within the inner city and that hold people down from making it that's what people are suffering from within these environments it's only a small group of young men who are also like yo i'm gonna eat the world it's that mentality i'm gonna eat the world i'm gonna get paper by any means get rich or die trying fuck the law like that whole mentality and when we talk about it just in terms of, oh, it's just poverty and this behavior is toxic masculinity. These are these, this is a reductive and very narrow-minded and very limited language that does not actually get to the heart of it. If anything, it goes further away from understanding what those lifestyles are about and, and how those conditions arise and how that mental environment arises. Yeah. Yeah. You, again, you said a lot. Um, <laughs> you said a lot. I was just thinking about, uh, I think I mentioned this when we first got started, but just, uh, I'll say this and I'll shut up, but I think it's, it's to this idea of like a buy-in of the worth of the, of the, of the action, right. By the people that are in the ecosystem. Right. So like 
I, I always say this when I say with my students, there's no difference in killing over a kilo and killing over oil, right? It's just that you have the buy-in of the of the different people, right? Yeah. Um, and, and in the different places where that buy-in is necessitated. And so one thing that you just opened up for me that I'm gonna um I'm gonna try and think about in terms of just looking for some guided reading, right? is this idea of uh, poverty being like a source mm -hmm. and then looking at the fact that there are other people that are in the same ecosystem that are dealing with the same poverties, but they're going to work. And what does that say? Right. Cause I, I, I don't know if I've either, either I haven't heard that idea in a long time or I hadn't heard that idea previous to which to you just saying it and why are they making different choices? And so again, like you said, that, that that's a narrow view it may be a portion of the source, right? Yeah, of course. But then, but you gotta you gotta kind of get into those nuances. So I'm I'm definitely gonna be looking out for some reading on that, so I can better talk about that too, because that's interesting. Of course, because because to me, all I wanted to add, because to me, it's like that mentality of Achilles in the Iliad, yeah, and of all those Greek warriors going to war and deciding this is what we want to do, is the same mentality of young men who decide to join gangs and who decide to to make money through crime yeah. and decides to live dangerously in it like like yo running up in someone's yard like kicking off someone's door to go you know run up on them with a gun and whatever put a gun in their face and shit like that's not some easy shit to do like psychologically that's not not everyone can has the heart to do that shit and everything in it i'm not glorifying that by saying that and i'm not celebrating that but it's a certain type of mind frame. It takes a certain type of individual. Like you have to be built different to do that kind of shit in it. So that's the same way that some Greek warrior like 4,000 years ago was 3,000 years ago was moving in it. Like it's to do with a psychological state. It's not just to do with environment. It's not just to do with like hard times in it. There are plenty of people who've had much harder lives than me who never resorted to crime. There are plenty mm -hmm, of more fucked up in environments he didn't resort yeah, yeah. like you know so yeah it's also to do with a psychological state and, ahead, and, and one thing i want to add here is and, and i've just noticed this like anytime we talk about violence someone thinks that that automatically equates to the glorification of it and yeah. i've seen so many works including yours where People would say this is the glorification of it, and it's really not. The depiction of something does not equal glorification, you know? And, and, and to top it off, this is an autobiographical novel, so you're just speaking two things that happen, you know? And, 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 and you're also showing in, you know, this character of Snoop's Gabriel, right, that, hey, yes, this is one aspect of who I am. Like, I'm going to class... I'm, I'm reading Hamlet, you know, I'm reading, uh, you know, Nietzsche. Sorry, I might be getting his name wrong. I haven't engaged with his work like that. that but, shit you know, and... <laughs> and Look, <laughs> go ahead. No, nah, and it's just like, you, you see so many different layers. You see Gabriel even, you know, engaging with Yinka and showing like his softer mm -hmm. side mm -hmm. with Yinka. And mm -hmm. you see... um. You even see Gabriel say, and now I can kind of get into this. I, I wanted to write this down because I love this, right? Mm -hmm. and, and because I know this is autobiographical, I know Gabriel sees books this way. We even see Gabriel say one of my favorite things I've ever seen in a book, which is that books 
that I take care of books. Gabriel, <laughs> let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. <laughs> Boo. Is, that was that was one of my favorite things I've ever read in a book. When when, well, when you I say don't deserve to have their spines cracked. Yeah. Finally, someone said it. <laughs> like, yo, like, bro, yo your, your book is in good condition. It's in bro, great my condition. Book, my book looks like they've never been read. <laughs> that is how they should look. Yo, bro, come to my yard and see my bookshelf. I want it to look like they're in a bookshop, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you see me. You see me, bro. Like they're all they're all clean. They're all pristine. Y'all see me. I write all over these babies. Oh, damn it. I find I don't mind now, but you know what? It's true because it's like it's like everyone has their own way. Everyone has their own way. Yo, one of my yeah. boys came to my yard recently and was like looking at one book. And he's like, he starts turning the pages. Yo, he rips. Yo, at one point I'm like, bruv, give me that fucking book. <laughs> But you're not allowed to, like, you've just ripped three pages. And that's the point where I'm like, wait, he's actually just ripped three pages. I'm like, yo, have you know what? Fuck it. Yours. I don't want it. I don't want it in my house. I'm going to go out and buy a new copy and just put it on my... You know them ones, innit? We all have yeah. different ways of reading, innit? I love it. I love yeah. it. <laughs> we we all have different ways, but only a few of us do it the right way. That's what I'm oh, saying. No, <laughs> <laughs> nah, I don't want I don't want no ripped pages, but I like my books to like yo, that's a whole debate. Weathered. That's a whole <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yo, but Reggie, you would like Nietzsche though. You would yeah. like Nietzsche. You would like Nietzsche's work. Uh it's I think heavy. you would like a shit ton. You would like a ton of it's of, very of, heavy of, stuff to get into. Yeah, he got he got something for everything. Now, and and I actually and shout out to you, Gabriel, because the only way to really like kind of like do research for the show is to kind of like listen to like pods and stuff like that. I ended up getting, I want to say, the genealogy and morals, and um, I got a a, a story collection from Isaac Babel, uh, based off one of your uh one of your interviews that you did. You know, so yeah, yeah and 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 from what I read, genealogy and morals is supposed to be kind of like his most approachable work. So I figured, hey, I might as well start, you know, where it's most approachable and then work my way up, build my muscle and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started out with Beyond Good and Evil, I think. I think uh, Beyond Good and Evil, Thus Spoke, uh, that Zarathustra book. Yeah. And I think I might did a reader. This is my favorite work of his now, I think, is uh, Human, All Too Human. Like, that's mm-hmm. my favorite. But I also read The Birth of Tragedy, which is well that I read at uni, which is more about art and uh, and the way in which art separates itself from um uh from not stoicism, from oh, I can't remember, it's like the rationalization or the f- rational philosophy, rational Greek philosophy and the separation between art and the way in which the artist expresses truth through their interpretation of the world around them as opposed mm. to having to present literal truth, i.e., for example, the difference between a painting and a photograph and why a painting can sometimes be more powerful in conveying something about truth and about the human condition. Yeah. 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 And each heavy shit, man. It's not lighthearted. Yeah. Really, trust me. And, right. and, and another thing that you said about Nietzsche, right, like in the, in the work, and this is like towards, I guess, the middle, is and one of my favorite things because it's something that my my co-host here believes in right is 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 the wolf right you talk about how you know a what i'm gonna butcher the quote too right but basically the sheep yeah the sheep can't 
you know, uh, the sheep, it, it's absurd for the sheep to criticize the wolf for following, you know, their instinct, right? And you also were saying, I'm not even going in order at this point, right? But you were also saying how, you know, there are strong, there are basically strong wolves and then wolves that are like less strong, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering if you could just talk to us about that more, just, just the, the instinct. And I'll even add this in there, right? one of the natural instincts and you started to kind of approach this a little bit in, in a big theme that I see in your work is revenge, right? How, mm -hmm. you know, when, you know, you know, it's natural for people to want revenge, right? It's just like how, um, you know, when we talk about uh, just heinous things that, that people do, yes, this is a classroom scene that I can, that I can include in this, right? There's, there's the classroom scene where I think it is uh, Nietzsche again, right? Injustice and like, punishment and stuff like that mm. and how yeah if, if 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 a rapist or a pedophile is out there my if my instinct is to get revenge they're going to get punished anyway because mm. i don't i don't fuck with that i don't let something like that slide yeah, right yeah, yeah, um yeah. can you just talk to us about i guess the these instincts and how people maybe are examining our instincts wrong and just the natural inclination for revenge yeah so like so from with the genealogy of morality it starts with this amazing quote where he says it is the meaning of all culture to breed a tame and civilized animal out of the beast of prey man and mm -hmm. within that the implication is therefore that all men or all of mankind i.e all humans are beasts of prey and and the concept of culture in that sense is basically all the rules the regulations and the structures of society and civilization that then create parameters for us within which to exist and that's what tames us that's basically what what breeds us into a tame and civilized animal in it but some of us resist that some of us resist that and the easiest and most clear example of humans who resist that are criminals basically because they decide to follow their instinct to commit mm -hmm. and to completely disobey all the rules and the parameters even though it's been very clearly outlined to them from the beginning that there are consequences like they know there are consequences to what they're going to do but they still choose to do that because they're following their instinct now the thing within that which is complicated is that not every human has the instinct for power or has the instinct to act destructively so it's not true to say that every single person is a beast of prey that would then if if there was no law or or you know nothing in place to protect society or to protect people then like every single person would be robbing everyone and killing everyone no nah, not at all not at all people also have the instinct for kindness for empathy like mm -hmm. for you know for altruistic actions i.e helping other people people have those instincts as well in it but it would be foolish to deny that the instincts for revenge the instincts for violence are therefore lesser instincts and only the good instincts are really what's natural and no everything is natural to us that's how it exists that's why criminality hasn't been wiped out for thousands mm. of years people have tried governments and societies and civilizations have had punishments for crime and for law breaking and everything and yet people are still criminals every every new generation there new there's a new generation of criminals like it's the same culture getting repeated over and over again isn't it and for me like yeah i find it i find it almost amusing that like when people talk about rules or principles right 
they would talk about lawlessness or a lack of rules, a lack of morals. And it's like, no, man, the moral codes are very clear. So, for example, it's like if you're in a prison in the UK and and a paedophile or a rapist comes onto onto the wing, it's like, yo, he's getting the shit stabbed out of him in the showers or in his cell or whatever, like standard. And, and yo, I'll say this now on record, I'm fully into that. I fully support that shit. I don't care if someone is like, oh, you can't say that about doing that to another human being because you have to, no, fuck that. You don't have to understand anything. If someone commits that violation of raping somebody or sexually abusing a child or whatever, nah, fuck that. Stab the shit out of them. That's what they deserve. I put my name on it. Like, I don't care in it. That is that is the principles that I believe in, in it. And anyone who's like too soft-hearted to, to understand that means you don't understand how terrible and destructive that violation is to another human being. Like... And it means that you're not actually, you think you're being empathetic if you find that problematic because it's such a violent ex expression of what I think is correct. Well, think about this. Somebody who's moving weight, who's selling drugs, yeah, and they sell like, I don't know, they, they get caught with like 10 keys or something, right? They're, they're getting like 10 years, 10 years, 15 years, like they're getting crazy sentences. And then somebody who abuses a child can get like five years, do two and a half, and then they're out on the street, even though they've ru ruined that child's life. Yo, there's something deeply fucked up with the justice system, because what that expresses to me, and this is my interpretation now, like totally, so I'm just saying this from a subjective perspective, what that expresses to me is that the government cares more about you not being able to make money and giving them a cut, i.e. taxable money, you know, mm -hmm. work within their economic system that they've set up, which generally makes the rich richer and the poor poorer, yeah? So they see, if you're a drug dealer and you, you make millions selling drugs, they see that as a greater threat to the equilibrium of society because you're making money, i.e. money matters more, than a child who's abused by an adult. And that's the value that they place. And at that point, if you look at it like that, it's very difficult if you look at that in such a stark way that a drug dealer is seen as a greater threat than a child molester. It's very difficult for you to then believe in what justice represents and believe that it represents a pure, truthful and like accurate representation of what we should value as human beings within society. And this is like... I'm, I'm not going to stay too much on this topic because it's such a difficult topic to get into. It can be debated for, for ages. But back to that shit, it's like within that context of Beast of Prey, it's like everyone has a code in it. We all have a code. That's why in the streets, it's like no snitching is a code. That's a rule. You can't say we're lawless. You can't say we don't have rules and we don't have principles and we don't have ethics. No snitching is an ethic. You might not agree with that ethic. You might not agree mm -hmm. with that principle, but it is a principle. It's a rule. Like the same way that like, yo, you got to back your boys. If something's happening, you got to ride out for your team. That's a rule. If you don't obey that rule, there are consequences in it. Human beings instinctively exist within some kind of framework of rules. Like as much as they want to deny it or, or if there's a framework of rules which goes against their society, their context, their system rather, it's like it's it's undeniable that every every system has rules and yeah likewise as well when you know politicians can can take us to war on a lie you know because they want to get oil so like for example the iraq war you know what happened in the uk tony blair told a lie on tv he said they're weapons of mass destruction it was over a lie. Too, yeah. <laughs> oh, my man should be in prison my man should mm -hmm. be, according to what according to what society presents to us about right and wrong <clears throat> 
my man should be in prison. But nah, if you have real power and money and influence, you can get away with shit that a normal person cannot get away with, innit? And at that point, it's up to you as a human. It's a very difficult thing as well that, that in adulthood, you have to decide for yourself that are you going to burn the world because you see how fake so much of it is? Or are you going to find your own context of how to live as a good person according to some principles that you believe in while also seeing through the bullshit of the way in which certain rules, principles are dictated to us by, by wider society and by the kind of the so-called gatekeepers of the law and, and justice and everything. It's a very difficult part of the human condition once you see that hypocrisy, you know? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I, no, I, I some, but you go ahead, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, no, I just, I just... I just am really enjoying like you just like talking about everything because my mind is going in like more directions that I think I'm able to like even handle right now. Right. So so and and I, I really appreciate that. And this this makes me think of. Right. And this is kind of like a question. Like um, I, I'll, what I'll say is there's a scene in the work that involves the Daily Mail. Right. Mm. And. This just makes me think of the importance of controlling your narrative and just and the importance of this. This doesn't necessarily have to do with the, the Daily Mail piece, but just making sure you hear like multiple perspective on things. And, and 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 the Daily Mail piece kind of speaks to like a bigoted perspective being put out there. Right. And And I don't necessarily think I think those I think we should engage with like the bigoted in prejudice in, in harmful perspectives to dismantle them right i mm. think it's important to know how to engage and dismantle and i mm. think it's also important to just know how to control a narrative because everything that you've said on here about the rules that that these you know folks are following right and even just how this this version of masculinity shouldn't be labeled as toxic i think it's important that this is out there and I think it's important that you're even saying it because it is a way of controlling the narrative. And and I think it's also important that you're saying, like, look, this is and, and I'm kind of taking this from another book we read um, stories from tens downstairs. This is like a one percent. And to quote my man, Achille, and I'm going to be done after this. This is a marginalized group within a marginalized group. Yeah. Yeah. And right? one of the but one of the problems as well that you've touched on there as well is for example with labels like like let's say toxic masculinity or other other labels in general yeah is that what you have and this is i think a big problem as well within writing and within the literary scene in general is everyone just everyone hears a label and they just subscribe to it they just subscribe to it they're just like because if you hear enough of a majority repeating the same thing and da 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 da, da your people are too shook to think for themselves and to think is this actually true like is this label true is is this way of framing a work of literature or framing the way in which we see certain things in life is it true like am i just gonna be a sheep and follow it because enough people are saying this and i don't want to be i don't want to be attacked for having uh -huh. a different opinion i don't want to be criticized i don't want to find myself getting isolated or ostracized by certain people i want everyone to like me which is a bullshit fucking aspiration for any artist like and then people just jump on the bandwagon and start reusing these terms and repeating them repeating them repeating them ad nauseum until it becomes like just this cemented concept and it's like Absolutely, yeah. 
step away from it and be like, well, is this actually a real concept or has it been overused? Is it too much of a generalization? Does it not really touch on these things? To me, you know what the biggest problem of the Daily Mail article was? That The one that I refer to in my book. To me, the biggest problem with with what was written about, with what I wrote about in, in, um, in the book about this Daily Mail article is this is an article where a woman says that she, that first of all, that she walks into a gang fight. Yeah, she walks into the middle of a gang fight with her kids, their bottles flying around her, duh, 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 duh. and she then says that this group chases her shouting, catch the whitey. And that, yeah, I just, I just know that is cap. That is full cap. That is a lie. That is not true. I don't give a fuck about the fact that I wasn't there. I know that is a lie. Why? Because no one talks like that in the hood in London. She was also describing a gang fight between the the little kids from South Kilburn and the little kids from another area. So I also know exactly which kids she's referring to, innit? It's like no one shouts like no one talks like that no one would shout that chasing after a white woman on the streets of northwest london it's just bullshit and this just plays mm. into a racist narrative that's going to fuel racism because that's really the purpose of of writing that shit to create an othering etc but the thing that offended me the most about the article is when she goes on to say oh i'd spent years of my life infiltrating gangs it's like shut the fuck up you ain't infiltrating <laughs> shit like you are a professional liar like a lot of journalists who say they've infiltrated gangs or spoken to mm -hmm. people no you haven't because real gang members are not going to talk to journalists like what planet are you on where you think what you can walk into the hood and people are and you're gonna be like hi i'm a journalist right for can you talk to me yeah sure i'm gonna tell you about everything it's like vice Vice is one of the worst channels for this. They do all these interviews with drug dealers talking about selling drugs. Yeah. What fucking drug dealer wants to go on camera to talk about chopping up food and bagging up food and, and shotting food? Like, I remember they had their put on on their own Vice. It's funny. <laughs> and yo, you know what? I've got a funny anecdote about that. Vice once contacted me. When I, when I used to be like in the bando, like this is years back here, I got a phone mm -hmm. from a Vice journalist. Someone gave them my number and they wanted they wanted to interview me about trapping, innit? So I was like, the first thing, first I was like, yo, who the fuck gave you my number? Da, 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 da. But the first thing I say is, how much are you going to pay me? The first thing I say is, mm -hmm. how much are you going to pay me? to do? Okay, you want an interview with me in the bando, chopping up food, face masked up. They said they'll change my voice and everything. Do the, how much mm -hmm. are you going to pay me? Because I, I have no interest. Why do I want to be on Vice? It's not going to be my name. It's not helping my career. These times I'm a trapper, innit? I'm not a writer. It's not going to help my career. So there's only one interest for me to do this interview. If you pay me, right? And I'm getting mm -hmm. my, So you better be paying me something proper for like an hour of my time. They go, the, the journalist who phones me, she's like, oh, we don't pay our subjects for interviews. I'm like, you don't pay your subjects for interviews. I go, yo, listen, that means every single person you've ever had on your interviews is fake. They're an actor. They're an actor. Why the fuck? What interest do I have in telling you about what I do? I have no interest. It's a waste of my time. That's like, wild. I've, got, I've got shit to do. So, yo, this is just a perfect example of the way in which things are framed in the media, which are completely fake, completely fake. And that Daily Mail article when that woman's talking about infiltrating gangs, she ain't infiltrated shit. Like, and that was the thing that I had the biggest problem with. 
the other thing though i want to add and because this is quite an important segue to add to this there's a writer who wrote a book about like the hood and or set in the hood in in london in it like in a similar context to mine in it it's a total invention of this writer's imagination in it like and when i've read certain extracts of it it's like i can see through it and just the portrayal is fake. It's unrealistic. It, it's not like that in the hood. People are not like that. People don't talk like that. People don't think like that. Like everything about it is just like, it's just fake, isn't it? And it's a very carefully constructed book with a carefully constructed narrative arc that pleases people. It's definitely a book that pleases the general readership more than my book would please people. Right. And even mm. now I'm talking in the context of structure where some people might be like, oh, my book is like really unstructured. But but this writer, he wrote such a beautiful structured book and therefore it's much better. Yeah, well, it's well structured because it's bullshit. It's not real. It's a product of his imagination. And he's thought very carefully about how to provide a satisfying, well structured narrative. But I want to say this. I would never deny that person, that author, even though what he wrote is bullshit. I'll never deny them the right to write about my world. Because yeah. being a writer and being an artist, you should have the total artistic freedom to write about and talk about and create works of art about whatever you want. And it's up to us as the as the audience to discern what's bullshit, what's shit, what's not worth engaging with. But they still have the right to write about stuff that they don't know about because that's the priority of an artist is to use your imagination in it. The only importance is us to look at it later and be like, yeah, it's nice, it's well written, but it's not real in it. And we don't have to focus on that in it. People want to find safety within art and safety within literature. And one example of that, that safety which kills literature and which kills art is this the University of Essex recently removed Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad from the compulsory reading list. And the reason they removed it is because they said it contained graphic depictions of slavery, which some students might find upsetting. Mm. Now, what fascinates me about this here is there is no such thing as a non-graphic depiction of slavery. Hmm. By its definition, slavery is graphic and horrific. The only way you should engage with it as well is to be upset by it. You shouldn't yeah. be allowed. You should not be allowed as a human being to engage with a subject such as slavery and not be upset, not be disturbed. You should like that should not be permitted. So to remove a book because you're trying to protect students from horror, which is the only way in which to understand the horror of some of an event like that and of a historical occurrence like that is to basically deprive them of truth. You're basically deciding to remove truth because truth is too confrontational, too upsetting, too triggering, too disturbing. I hate that term triggering, but that's that's the term that they use and everything in it. And I remember when 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 this news came out in in the uk because it was this year when it was announced that this book was getting withdrawn from the the reading list at essex university and a professor came onto twitter and the professor was like if you have any problem with this then you basically have a problem with niceness and it was like mm. what the fuck has niceness got to do with education what the fuck has niceness got to do with literature and art nothing Niceness is only relevant to human interactions. The way I interact with you, the way you interact with me, if we're nice to each other, we'll get along just fine. And society will be better for it if we're nice to each other. But when it comes to art, 
when it comes to literature, when it comes to history, niceness has no place. That's some bullshit word. And that is that is something which has been created by a pathetic people, like that professor, who is obviously a pathetic person, who just does not want anyone to have any unpleasant experience. Whereas the only way for you to read about slavery is for you to be, you have to be uncomfortable and you have to be upset and you have to be disturbed. Just like if you read about the Holocaust, you should be completely horrified by what you read. It should be graphic because it was graphic by its nature. The entire experience of it was graphic. And therefore the same thing, if you're going to read about gang culture and young gang members in northwest london living a crazy fuck the law i might die tomorrow lifestyle then yo it's got to be explicit it's got to be raw and it's got to be extreme because that's what that world is really like so so then you have to turn around to this industry which talks about we want authentic voices and say do you really want authentic voices or do you want a version of authenticity do you want a version of reality to cater that caters to your moralistic and pathetic requirements to make everyone happy and satisfied and feel safe and nice and comfortable? Fuck that. When I'm reading your book, too, I'm wondering, because this is kind of where we're floating. We're floating around this. I want you to talk, talk to us a little bit about your experience of being from that that um that uh what did i say that, that that other marginalized community but not even but just that other community right and then while simultaneously being a part of the the university community and then interacting with the folks who have the biggest propensity to become that journalist right because that's something that i've had to deal with I, i'm in um i'm in mississippi i'm in the, the south of uh, america and I, and I went to a predominantly white institution uh and i'm from a certain neighborhood right and so what i noticed when i would be in those classrooms right is there are people here in these classrooms who are talking about my people but they have no they're in that envelope that i was talking about earlier they have no relationship to that lifestyle and they're mm. and they're in position to make policy that affect those folks mm -hmm, they're mm -hmm. in they're in a position to um to affect scholarship that makes these depictions about these people that they've never you know had any interactions with and then they're in a position to create articles like that piece that we were talking about earlier can you what i want to i want you to talk about like what that feels like when you're in that room right um and you're going back and forth between those two worlds um, because I think what what I'll get is, well, I will I'll tell you what I, after I hear what you're saying. But can yeah, you talk so, about what that feels like? Uh, yes, yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with Du Bois. Are you familiar with Du Bois? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that double consciousness. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so it's interesting because like a lot of people framed it, at least journalists framed it as living a double life. Mm -hmm. Like what living a double life? It was just my life, isn't it? That's just what it was. That was reality for me. Like I didn't, I didn't act a different way when I was at uni. As in, like I didn't put on a mask or like dress up a certain way to go to uni. You know, I'd be sitting in in lectures in it with my diamond grills in my mouth in it, like talking about Nietzsche and shit, and like expressing myself how I want to express myself in it. Like I didn't hide who I was, but I also loved literature. I loved engaging with literature. I loved going to to seminars and lectures. Like the only time I say it in the book, the only time I ever missed a lecture or a seminar in my whole life was because I had a court case in the morning and I'd miss it because I'd be in court. That's it. Like, 
every lecture I went to, I wanted like I wanted to be involved in heavily seminars. I wanted to be involved in heavily. It was my reality. It was it was as important to me as what you know the other shit that I was doing and the other shit I was involved in. In it, like in terms of the way in which you know people talk about how people exist within spaces. Like yeah, you can have experiences where you know people you can get weird judgmental reactions from certain people either because they don't expect shit from you like or they have certain preconceptions of you and expectations of you but then for that same reason it's like you know when like i mean i don't know 100 about how american authors necessarily do it in general but like i have this principle of if i go to a, a book festival and i see like i've been to like now I've been to like two book festivals. Well, I've been one book festival in the UK. I went to Vancouver Literary Festival, and I also went to a book festival in in Warsaw in Poland, in it where my where my whole family's from and everything. In it, and people, especially the men in general, they tend to do this thing of they wear a shirt, they wear smart trousers, and they wear smart shoes. Yo, fuck mm -hmm. that, bruv. This is like an opportunity to stunt your own stage. Yo, bust out the AV. The like the <laughs> iced out grills in my mouth, Go like yeah, I don't have iced out grills, and that's for special occasions, like a fucking book festival. Put that iced out grills <laughs> in your mouth, like drop the Gucci, like look drippy in it. You know them ones, like Louis V puffer jacket, whatever I want to rock in it, like yeah. Nike, put my Jordans on my feet and everything. Because when I open my mouth and start talking, that's when you'll know the value of my intellect. That's when you'll know how serious I am about this shit. Because to me, writing and literature is not a game. It's not a joke. I don't do it for fun, innit? Like, I do this because I've got some mad serious shit to say. That, and I'm not saying either that that's, what, that's, that's not what being a writer is about. Every single mm -hmm. writer has a different purpose and intent. And it's completely valid as well. So now I'm just talking about myself as an individual. My intent as a writer is to do something really serious and writing is deadly serious to me it's really really fucking serious to me because also it's a huge risk like i know how to get money if i wanted to get money i wouldn't be a writer it's a need as well it's a compulsion that has completely overtaken me to want to want to be a writer and to create art because also i think art is like the highest pinnacle of what human beings can create like it's the greatest thing in it. And especially if you create something really powerful, it's amazing. That's why every now and again in music, yeah, you get because we have our genres of art, but every now and again you get something like, you know, Kendrick's latest album. That like Kendrick's latest album is a work of literature. It's a work mm -hmm. of literature, a work of art. Like, and that's why when you put that shit on and you're like, yo, it took five years for this to come. You didn't hear anything from my man for five years, and then he drops that, and you're like, yo, the fuck? It's like you're, it's like you're having a spiritual experience when you listen to some of that shit, isn't it? That's the highest pin, pinnacle of what a human being can create and achieve and what we can experience as human beings, isn't it? So I think that's that's really important. Within that world, just to go back to that thing about, you know, uni and, and the different worlds, it's like, yeah, like, what I would say is, yeah, there were there have been difficult things and I've experienced this now again within the literary scene of, like, of this thing of how people take me or how people judge me. And... And also there are stereotypes and preconceptions that you have to fight against, right? Like constantly, like I can say this as a for a fact in the UK, like as coming from the background that I'm coming from and what I'm writing about, if I was a black author, it would be easier for me because I'd tick boxes for an industry that has preconceptions, right? Because they'd be like, oh, a black author who came from the hood, who's writing some hood shit, 
tick a box, boom, cool, we can easily pigeonhole him. And it's like, yo, this bread's white, but he's like this, isn't it? But he's Polish as well. But he mm. talks about Nietzsche off the top of his head. Like, they're like, we don't know how to fucking categorize this guy, innit? And when I write in my book as well about identity, because I tend to like steer away from that because I, f I don't want people to focus on it and I don't want people to obsess on it because of the way in which this lazy, and now I'm talking specifically about the UK, this lazy British approach to identity, which is to make everything about the now. And when it comes to literature, they make everything about the now or they relate it to the politics of the time and they frame it within politics. And it's like, if you frame a work of literature within a specific like topic of debate that's happening just now, that work of literature won't last forever, innit? Like my my work of my my book should last forever because it's about the philosophy of morality, which is something which has affected human beings for thousands of years and is gonna affect human beings for thousands of years. But what I do write about is how I, when I'd go to court, it would be easier for me because I was white and because I understood how to play the system and I understood yeah. what that system expected of me as a white man in court in a suit. I knew exactly what they expected of me and what you they still wanted. had them fresh kicks on, though. Did you? Not, I'm <laughs> under the desk, so they couldn't see it. <laughs> 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 no, but for real, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you know, I had yeah. the fresh kicks on. I had the fresh kicks on because I thought I was gonna go. Honestly, I had the fresh kicks on in in that court case that I described because I thought I was gonna go to prison, and I was like, I don't want to be getting into the jailhouse with smart shoes on. Because then mm -hmm. it's like, like oh, who the fuck is this? Like, whereas yeah, when they see yeah. their and shit, they'll be like, all right, cool. <laughs> but yeah. no, but for real, it's like, and you're constantly, and and it's like, again, I don't want to talk about this too much because I think it's a subject that is so over-talked about now. Yeah, navigating spaces. Like you are, though, as a human being, you're constantly navigating spaces because every space you enter into, you're looked at completely differently. And sometimes... If it's not, if you're not entering spaces with friends in each space, you can feel very stressed by having mm. to like having to now like deal with the looks of others and the preconceptions that you can see are like ticking away in people's heads when they look at you and and how they treat you in a specific place. When you just want to, in a sense as well, it's not even about being recognized or validated. It's also about being left alone. And by left alone doesn't mean being left alone physically, being left alone by people's from people's preconceptions. It's almost like you mm. want them to be like, don't think anything of me. Let me be a blank page until you talk to me, until you engage with me. Just let me be a blank page. But unfortunately, as human beings, we're not like that. Like, yeah. We all do that. I do that as well. As much as I'm speaking in this like, you know, very objective way right now, I'm not an objective person. I'm a human being. I'm subjective. I'm instinctively subjective. We're all instinctively subjective, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Look, you you again said a said a said a, a whole lot. I was just thinking you, you I, I was thinking about that when I was reading it, right? Like you did stray away from like letting them really, really set the identity. And 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 I bring that up because it was funny because when Reggie like was telling me about it, he was like, Yo, I got this cat, you know, you know, Gabriel, you know, I think we should bring him on. Uh, I was like, ah, okay, I'll check it out, right? You know, because I got these preconceived notions too, right? So I look at it and I, I, I think I, I think I put the audio on or something, right? And and I, I hit Reggie up. I was like, yo, cuz the real deal, like, yo, this this legit, like, and th and that made me think about something that you alluded to earlier, but that like like people that have a, an authentic relationship with a certain environment can notice it, no matter whether it's across, you know what I'm saying? 
whether it's 100. from here or over there. And so yeah, real record, like, real, real recognized, real in it. I was like, yo, yeah. some, some, I, I hear it. I said, yo, cause, cause the real deal. Yeah, we need to bring them on, right? And we have a very clear respect of history, yeah. right? Um, that comes through in this book. You mentioned, uh, I got it wrote down here. Um, and what made me just think about it was when you were just talking about, uh, oh my goodness, oh, slavery. When you were just talking about slavery and the ugliness of slavery, right? You mentioned uh, ancient Kemet. You mentioned the Nubians. You mentioned the Anunnaki and several other things <laughs> that I'm that I'm like familiar with, right? But I just want to know why was that important? or And even if it wasn't important, I think sometimes we over inflate things. But why was that like such a important piece of your story? And I guess when I'm asking why, I'm literally just like trying to nerd out and understand how those stories are existing over there in Europe, as opposed to my experience with those stories. So like, how do you learn about ancient commit? Uh, is that, you know, because there's a, there's a street level of that information, right? Uh, where you know, where I'm, where if I'm, I'm chilling with my homies, they might be like, "Yo, peace, God!" Right? The nation of God yeah, yeah. on Earth, right? And then there's a scholarly level of it, you That's know. Percent thing, isn't it? That's the five percent thing that you're. Yeah, the five percenters. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I only heard about that in New York still, but like now, nah, but <coughs> but you know what it is? Yeah, it's like first of all, I encountered all that stuff about like Kemet and the Anunnaki and stuff. I encountered that in the hood, innit? And like, we were into that, like, as in me and my boys were into, like, when we were like maybe 19 or 20, we started like, I don't, I can't remember. I can't, honestly, I can't say 100% how, but it's like, we came across all this stuff and started reading up about it for ourselves because mm -hmm. it was stuff we'd never heard about. And it's simply that there's a certain point when you're like, when you start like encountering things that you've never heard about and it's interesting and and it's not of your time as well it's about an ancient distant time and a distant past some people are naturally instinctively fascinated by that stuff and they engage with it in it like for me i would say as well in the environment that i was it's like i don't want to make a big thing of this because because it's like i just don't I, I just don't see it as like it's more something that people have pointed out to me than than that I consciously think about it but obviously I'm in this environment it's like all my boys and all the people around me they're not white in it they're all black like it's simple mm -hmm. so when they're talking about this stuff I'm listening and I'm hearing about things that I haven't heard of as well but then I'm engaging in discussions with people about all this stuff and we're talking about stuff yo listen I used to watch yo this is gonna be this is going to be funny because you lot are going to know who I'm talking about. Whereas in, in the UK, not that many people know. You know Malachi York, innit? Yeah, yeah. I know that I know name, man. Yeah. yeah, that's, that's, yeah. My that's, guy, yeah. yo, my man was fully fat. <laughs> but still, yeah. Nah, but he said, but, he's, but he used to talk some crazy shit and I'd be like fascinated. And we'd like, yo, we'd smoke up and we'd like sit for like two hours smoking and watching Malachi York videos and shit. Like real talk, innit? It was mad. Mm -hmm. It was mad. Anything to stimulate the brain that's like outside of like, you know, the prescription of, of the daily news and stuff, you know, what we're used to getting fed, we would just engage with, innit? Obviously, I was yeah. at uni, so I was also engaging with a different type of learning, which was, you know, learning literature from a, a serious perspective. But to me, it was really important because in the book, when I mentioned Kemet, it was this. It was the... The boys who were the most interested in Kemet and, and all this stuff here were from Caribbean backgrounds, right? Mm -hmm. 
because all my boys who are West African, they could trace directly where they came from, innit? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Their families yeah. were still in West Africa in Nigeria. So, so like I would say like my my closest friends are generally from the West Coast. So Sierra Leonean, Nigerian, Gambian. Like one of my best friends is from Sudan. I was actually in Sudan in December um for his wedding and stuff, innit? And and it's like Everyone, all those guys, they know where they come from, so they have their specific histories that they can trace already in it. Whereas I noticed mm -hmm. my boys who are Caribbean, they were more into the Kemet stuff because yep. they could only trace their history up to a certain point, right? Yeah, and therefore, way, yeah. this gave them like a powerful sense of identity that linked back to an ancient, ancient history. And that's why when one of my boys was going through some really mad beef and shit, and I was, I was like, bruv, you could die. Like, as in the way that that things were happening, like, you know, shootouts and shit. I was like, bro, you might die. And he literally said to me, totally seriously, looked me in my eyes. And he was like, bro, my ancestors were gods. I can't die. If they kill me, I'll just go into another dimension. Yeah. And I was like, yo, this is mad powerful. I wasn't like, oh, this is some bullshit. Oh, he's smoking too much weed on it. No, I was like, yo, this is mad powerful. This is about how you can reclaim a sense of mm -hmm. identity and power yeah. through your exploration of history of course sometimes it can go crazy like for example with the israelites who are yeah, just yeah. nuts like and are full of hate because that's you, the thing have you ran into them up there like i just no, ran into a group of them <laughs> wow. no 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 i haven't run into them i haven't run into them still i don't want to bruv because i know they're gonna talk shit <laughs> i don't want to still with their with their space cowboy suits and shit but like, wild now. <laughs> but yeah, they're wild. But you know what? It's like to me, it's like anything that is that is combined. But I know about like you know the Israelites and you know brother Polite and and mm -hmm. them. Yeah, 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 stuff, yeah. yeah. But it's like anything that you then combine with hate. That's when it becomes toxic and negative and like destructive. When it becomes mm -hmm. centered around hating one group of people or hating the appearance of a certain group of people, that's when it becomes damaging and negative. But before that, the exploration of ancient knowledge, I think there's nothing greater than the exploration of ancient knowledge because there's so much that was left behind us that like we still don't understand and we still don't know about. And to me, it was really important um, to refer to that because so many of my boys, so many people I was around were seriously into that stuff so if yeah. i didn't include that in in the narrative it would be to deny a very important part of their identity not mine but their mm -hmm. identity the way they saw themselves the way they would portray themselves and um and another thing about that is that's that was that's what links to also when i'm writing about the hood in in south kilburn and and in who they was and like when i'm writing about that world that grimy greasy world yeah it's not just about how gritty and grimy and greasy it is. It's also about finding the beauty in these like surreal mm. moments when you see something and you're like, yo, what the fuck? This is mad. Like nowhere else in the world is this happening right now apart from here. And it comes to this description. It's my favorite. Actually, what I could say personally is my favorite line in the whole book, because to be honest with you, tangentially, I'm not really into my book. I don't really like it. It's the first attempt at being an author and and when I say I don't like it, I'm not saying this in the sense that it's a, it's an unhappiness or dissatisfaction that anybody can get rid of for me. No amount of reassurance can get rid of it for me. It's not that I need people to tell me, oh, you wrote a great book, or I can read endless reviews of my book saying my book is a great work and I'm a great talent. It's not going to change my opinion that 
I don't like my book and I don't think it's that good because what I'm aspiring to be is I'm aspiring to the pinnacle of writers. I'm aspiring to, you know, the very top Dostoevsky, Tony Morrison, Baldwin, like, you know, Babo, Nabokov, all these great masters, Bernhard, Sabold, all these names in it. That's what I'm aspiring to. I don't care if, if I got long listed for the booker and my contemporary didn't. That doesn't make me think I'm better than them in it because I don't really care about that shit in it. But the only line, so this goes back to the one line in my book that I'm happy with that I love, is when I describe people on my block. And I and I say this line, man then shot in crack on the block with diamond grills shining in black faces like fallen gods chewing stars. Mm-hmm. These are top gang members with diamond grills in their mouth selling crack. But to me, I saw this like strange, like surreal, like beauty in the scene because it's so surreal. Like they're on this gritty concrete block, but they've got grills in their mouths and shit. And they look like, you know, it's like make, it reminded me of like the image of like pharaohs from ancient kingdoms, isn't it? These are like princes in this like horrible environment who've decided, nah, fuck this environment. I'm going to get money and I'm going to look good and I'm going to express my power through jewelry, which is something that kings have been doing for thousands yeah, of years, I was just isn't thinking it? About, like, yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, we've been doing we've been doing this shit. We've been doing when someone someone recently on, on Insta asked me like why do you have like why do you have diamond grills and all what's the obsession? I was like same reason that your grandma used to wear earrings. Like as in what kind of question is that? Just because you don't wear grills or you don't get grills because it's not like that in your environment. This is our environment's form of expressing power, of expressing accomplishment, achievement, success, like and also beauty. Beauty, that, that image of fallen gods chewing stars. You can't say that's not a beautiful image. And, mm-hmm. and in the sense, by, by framing it that way and not being like, oh, sinister characters lurking on the balcony, what I'm doing is I'm reclaiming the way in which other people see those things and turning it into a thing of surreal beauty, even if there's fear around that environment, even if the, the environment itself is hostile and full of danger in it. Yeah. 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 No, and, and, and um, I just, I just really appreciate that. And I think it's important. This is once again, going back to this controlling the narrative thing, right? If, if, if you're not from, within the environment it is i won't say it's impossible to find the beauty in it but it's much harder yeah, yeah. right it, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's much harder and it's less likely that you would see it right so yeah. it's just important that we we i just understand that now more than ever and this is part this is in part because of some endeavor that 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 well yeah by the time this comes out um th- this will be out um it's in part because we have like a newsletter out now right yeah. now Achille and I are controlling a narrative not only via audio and via a visual but now like on paper if you will yeah right? yeah now we have yeah. written words that are controlling narratives right and and I think reading all these books and seeing like the passion that like you have right here in front of us and even other guests that we've had right it goes to show that like if you don't if you don't tell your story someone else will yeah yeah and and they're not going to tell it the way it's supposed to be told yeah of course mm-hmm. so so it it it's it's it, it's kind of become a thing where it's like 
because I've been in denial about like just like writing itself, right? And mm-hmm. I'm getting to a point where it's starting to feel like it doesn't matter if I don't want to do this. It, it, I, I think I might have to do this, mm. you know, because if you, feel, if you feel that compulsion within you, then like, yeah, it's a need. It's a need more mm-hmm. than anything else. Like, I can't stand personally writers who are just like, oh, I think it's fun. I did it. Oh, I started. How did you start writing? Oh, well, I was really bored during the lockdown and I thought, oh, let me try and write a book. Yo, shut the fuck up, man. Get the fuck out of here. Like, you're not a writer. Like, real talk, you're not a writer. If you started writing because, oh, you were bored during the lockdown and you thought, let me try my hand at writing. Yo, fuck you. You're taking up space that some some other person who is a writer because they have this absolute need within them. They have this fire in their belly. Like, you're taking up space for them. Go and give space to people who are like actual serious writers, innit? I mean... It's bad, bad enough that there are a lot of bad writers who get celebrated and who make money. It's bad enough because that is also another problem. That's a whole next topic, isn't it? But, you know, the the real importance is like this people who have a serious artistic intent behind them or people like what you just said, Reggie, about this thing about having this need where you suddenly one day feel like it's not even about having a choice. It's like, I don't have a choice in a sense. It's like, I need to. If I don't write, a line a sentence for five days four days i feel bad within myself Feeling weird, yeah, yeah yeah i feel off key in it like it doesn't feel good in it you know and the thing as well that you said about other people um someone else will write your story it's interesting because it's a really good point because there's too much of this talk as well where people are like you can't write this story you can't write not nah, anyone can write whatever the fuck they want in it mm-hmm. the problem is the problem is is when a critic who doesn't know about that world or that reality is like, oh, this book is a wonderful, powerful book and all this hyperbolic language, a powerful exploration of da-da-da-da. And it's like, is it a powerful exploration or is it just a cheap imitation of what could have been a powerful exploration by somebody who really knows that, isn't it? You know, like, there's a big problem with critics, man. The, bruv, the amount of books, like, in, I don't think they have actually not you've got a similar culture in america but basically you know how like book covers have all these quotes in it on the cover to promote the book Mm -hmm. yo i haven't seen one book which doesn't have absolutely exhilarating an an astonishing exploration of what it means to be xyz um like you know, a powerful rendition of like yo everything is powerful and astonishing and it's like of course it's fucking not only a few books like a year or only a few books a decade are really powerful are really astonishing are really like amazing i generally don't read to be quite honest with you i generally don't read contemporary writing i generally don't read contemporary writing for that reason because first of all there are too many writers who i haven't read yet too many dead writers who are amazing who i haven't read yet and therefore it's like why am i going to start engaging with like contemporary writing if i haven't read the canon in it there's there's a few writers you know like there's some writers who I think are genuinely amazing, like Marlon James, for example. I, I think he's an absolute master in it. Like, although I haven't read his, I haven't read his fantasy series, but you know, and everyone says, of course, a brief history of seven killings, absolute fucking masterpiece. But I actually think his greatest book is the book of the Night Woman. Do you know mm-hmm. that book? That's like, what I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually think that's his his proper masterpiece. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's so, such a brilliant work of literature. And then there are like, there's a bunch of French contemporary writers who I like as well, like Edouard Louis and Leila Slimani and Mathias Enard. Like the French writers, are, I fucks with them, man, because they do daring, risky shit, innit? 
but I read actually I recently read The Sellout by Paul Beatty. Like mm-hmm. you know that book? No, that yeah. Book. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that was an amazing book as well. So every now and again there are like mm-hmm. some contemporary books that I read, but I'm still like I'm still like exploring the canon, you know what I mean? I'm still like trying to read everything that's that's been written. Like and it's important for us as well, like it's important for us to read books that were written a hundred or even over a hundred years ago to understand where where the kind of sense of what literature is comes from because everything is rooted within the past, isn't it? Yeah, no, it, it is. And you actually segued perfectly into like some of these questions we asked like towards the end, right? So, you know, what what is a book you've been reading and enjoying recently? I know you mentioned the sellout. Is that kind of is that the one you would say? Or is it like another book maybe you're currently reading and enjoying? No, this like I would say like you know what, probably the last book that I read that I really like loved. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this was like maybe I think I read it a month ago. So I read it um now I read it in um in August. So two months ago I read the sellout. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. Like really funny and really dark as well and really sad as well. Like incredibly an incredibly poignant and sad book. And and it was surprising because I read something, an interview with Paul Beatty where he said he was struck by how many of the uh, reviews of it just just described about just talked about how funny it was like and all they talk about is how what a comic genius he is and he was like oh actually it's rooted in the tragedy of black identity in america in modern america in it like and i was like i felt that heavily when i was reading it that the tragedy and the poignancy and the sadness behind it and it was also incredibly funny and one of the reasons why it was funny as well is because it was very risky like it took mm-hmm. a lot of risks he was very daring like he didn't care about like whether or not people would be offended by the humor or or upset by the type of humor and the approach and and that's how yeah. you create a work that goes boom and hits you in here and like doesn't doesn't leave you alone when you put it down because that's one of the worst things is to put a book down and then be completely left alone by it, and it good, doesn't, yeah yeah and it's not possessing you a really great book when you put it down and or when you're when you're in the middle of reading it but you put it down to go and do other things it's still possessing you it's still occupying your thoughts isn't it right yeah no and and it's so funny you talk about the seller like that because i and you talk about it taking risk and not like uh like like catering to our sensibilities because the first time i actually tried to read it that's why i put it down because yeah. I, I to be quite frank i was reading a lot of books that were nicer than the sellout to me right mm. and, and at the time not only was it difficult for me in terms of like not being able to like speed through it just because of the language but yeah. also just the jokes that he would make you know in the positions that the character would take right yeah. and i made the mistake at the time of hey if an author writes this character that character is the reflection of the author right but the read mm. a lot of readers don't even have the self-awareness to even examine themselves and oh, make yeah. that critique of themselves but yeah. that's a whole nother story so, as well but, too but that's a really good thing that you touched upon because this is something that has almost disappeared from western literature or at least western english language literature is writers writing narrators first person narrators who a don't represent them and b are not particularly likable characters or people mm-hmm. who want to be like and <laughs> french existentialist literature 
like 20th century French existentialist literature had a great tradition, especially writers like uh, Sartre, for example, mm-hmm. or Camus, for example, um, of writing narrators where it's like these are really like you could say bad people. And, you know, in a, in the same vein of, although it's not quite as profound as existentialist literature, but like American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis, you're not supposed to be like, I want to be like Patrick Bateman. You're not supposed yeah. to be like, I love Patrick Bateman. He's such a great character. But you're supposed to love him for being a character that defies all your sense of what a human being should be like or what you should aspire to be like. And to be able to be given this like, these narrators who are like these vessels that transport us into worlds we don't know about, not just physical worlds, but psychological worlds, how to experience what it's like to be a psychopath. What better way than to experience it through the eyes of a psychopath who's narrating this story? And yo, it's mad to me, it's mad interesting to explore the dark side of humanity through literature and to have these characters who are so flawed. Because I felt the same way when I was reading The Sellout. I felt this feeling like less viscerally than you, but like I felt this feeling of like, yo, this prayer's like a, a fool in it. And like, what is he? Why is his perspective so warped? And why is he subscribing to doing something which is ultimately negative? And yet I'm like, I, I'm so drawn to it. Like, I want to I have this compulsion to follow him. And even when he's doing things that are like self destructive or negative or like things that I don't want him to do, it's like, I have this urge to to stick to the story and to see what is going to happen next. Uh, and that's a really important thing to have in literature because we're not, like, writers are not supposed to be, and artists in general, we're not supposed to be, like, we're not priests. We're not preachers who are supposed to be preaching the new moral standards to the crowd. And we're not supposed to, as well as authors, be held to a moral standard where we have to prove that we are morally righteous and that we tick everyone's boxes. And now that we've ticked all your boxes, now that you're happy with us, can we tell you a nice little story? Nah, man, that's not what art is about. That's not what literature is about. We're supposed to provoke an attack and and we're supposed to cause some kind of inner conflict within you, you know? You know? Yeah. 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 No, 100%. Who, who is the author you would say you've read the most? <sighs> oh, that's a difficult one. I mean... Or some authors, maybe. Who's some authors? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of authors, like... In terms of authors whose books I've read, like, several times, just... To, yeah, I'll just give you just just three names, basically, quickly off the top of my head. Marlon James, um, Isaac Babel, and uh, W.G. Sabold. Hmm. Nice. Those three nice. authors, yeah. yeah. Okay, and... um. Who is an author? So I'll ask you two questions. You can answer like one of them, right? Because I think this would be interesting. So who's an author? So answer either an author whose work you wish was read, discussing, or taught more, or tell us your favorite book that you've read that no one's heard of. Or both. Hey, if you want to do both, you can do both too. Um, Shit, that's a difficult question. (laughs) I think an an author whose work I I wish people talked about more is Thomas Bernhard, an Austrian writer who I I only discovered him last year. And I think his work is absolutely amazing. I think he's like well known within some like central European literary circles. But in general, like in terms of like the every, you know, the average reader who reads like literary fiction or whatever, I don't think that many people know about Thomas Bernhard. 
so I, I i wish more people um discussed that but but i also wanted to i know this is slightly going away from your question but i wanted to say something as well about the greatest literary influence on me so the greatest yeah. literary influence on me in in more recent times was the the russian jewish author isaac babel in particular the odessa stories and the red cavalry stories it's the way in which he he mixes this incredibly beautiful language and capacity for beautiful observations with with this incredible brutality and this confrontational brutality of this this observation of real life and the horror of human existence but the biggest the biggest literary influence for me when i was younger was listening to it was written it was the first time mm. that was written by nas when i was 13 years old and i'll never forget that yeah because it was to me it was it's proper that is proper literature it's like crazy it's a crazy level of poetry it doesn't just evoke like a narrative and it doesn't just evoke a time and place but it invokes like these sensory experiences like it's like you can almost smell like yes yes yeah, the hallways the hallways, yes, the hallways. yeah the hallways of the queensbridge housing project and that when i encountered that at the age of 13 it was like prior to listening to that in terms of what i used to read i used to generally read books that were just about escaping so escaping to other historical periods or escaping to other worlds, in it. And when I heard that, I was like, yo, you can write about your reality, about like where you live, about the world that's going on around you in this incredibly evocative and poetic way. And that that definitely had the biggest um, impact on me from a literary perspective. And I would consider like, if someone were to say, what is the biggest literary influence on you? I would say Isaac Babel and Nas. Those those are the two biggest literary influences on me, and and that album it was written, I think personally is is a one of the greatest works of literature, and I also think it's his greatest album. As well. I like, say the same thing, thing, and folks be acting like I'm wilding. Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> it's written is his greatest album. Illmatic is a masterpiece as well. It's good, yeah. But it was written is like a a fucking work of literature, and the track "Take It in Blood." Which like their people don't think of that when they think of not like Nas's canon in it. They'll be like from that album, they'll say the message or street dreams, mm -hmm. like or yeah. if I rule the world and that in it. But nah, take it in blood. It's like it's a it's a total work of poetry. Like it's yeah. a total work of poetry. And, I love and, Nas for so many reasons. Um what were you gonna say, Rich? Because you know, once I get started talking about no, 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 you got it, no. you got it. Here. <laughs> But I love Nas for so many reasons, uh, and 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 they're similar to why why I enjoy your book because it's it's almost a a, a lesson in purism, right? Like like this, yeah. like when it comes to like hip hop, I'm a huge purist. Like I, I I can go on and on, but it's not like just pigeonholed to this idea of if you like you can't rap about things that you don't right that you haven't lived right, mm -hmm. but when you do. Like I am just all for that, right? And so, some of my best times is talking about it was written um, with one of my homeboys from New York that was from Queens, and he's literally we're, we're just breaking down. He's like, "Yo, there's piss all in the hall." He's like, "I love this because you can smell it." He was like, yeah. I, "I love this album because you can smell." It. He was like, "When it came out, he was like, you know, we 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 felt like it was a little a little bit different because we had just gotten through lauding Illmatic." But yeah, like it was written is just it's movie esque. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. In 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 the way that like 
you know, like 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 some of those movies that we like, like in the certain community law, like Belly, Shadows. Um, it has all of those elements and just this element of realism. Yeah, I, I, I say it all the time. It was written is is a freaking masterpiece. It's crazy. He wrote both of those albums at the age that he was at, which is another thing. Um, th- no. this I even the idea of it being crazy is crazy because it's like, why don't we know that there are kids that exist like this? Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know what yeah. I mean. Why yeah. don't we know that there are kids that exist like yeah. this? Because I'd be screaming that on this show. I've been doing this for what <laughs> a year and a half, Reggie. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, yo, this this is their real life. I'm teaching these kids. I see them every day. It may be a game to you, but it's not a game to them. You know what I mean? And um, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm I just get real hyped when I hear somebody say it was written as their favorite Nas album because no, it's everything. Hundred percent. And um, of course, I mean, we kind of talked about this a little bit off air, but some good music you've been listening to. Yo, West Side Gun, Hitler, West Hermes. <laughs> Props the other day. That shit is a masterpiece, like an absolute masterpiece. And to me, that's like the music now that I fucks with the most, isn't it? Like when I write, like I can't have um, lyrical music, in it? Because the lyrics will distract me. So I tend to listen to jazz or classical music it depends just like i've got just certain soundtracks that i put on like or playlists that i put on in it which is like just good background music but when i want to listen to music like lyrical music and i'm just chilling or i'm you know going about my business or whatever it's griselda all day griselda like west side gun conway benny the butcher yo like those are my guys that's what i listen to the most sometimes a bit of uh rock marciano i don't know if you know rock marciano yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. But special like all that East Coast, like gritty, gritty rap. Obviously, Kendrick's album when it came out, like I copped it, and it's amazing. Like that's a that's a proper proper work of art, a proper proper masterpiece. But what Westside Gun does as well is it's not just about his lyrics and like the way in which he drops his albums, but it's that he constantly has this emphasis when he talks about what he's doing as art. He's always mm-hmm. saying he's like, "This is art. This is art," and this so important and this is why this is why this podcast is so important because to say that books are pop culture is one of the most important messages when it comes to literature in in the modern day and age the industry the industry is not doing anything the publishing industry is not doing anything to make books part of wider pop culture they have decided that they are going to generally market to people who read already to people who already like find books as a valid form of entertainment whereas actually books should be just as much a part of pop culture as fashion as movies as um as music like basically it should just be part of pop culture you should the same way that you see celebrities plugging like a brand you should see celebrities plugging books in it because mm-hmm. if they did that they would normalize reading and everyone would just read it would just be the normal thing to do in it you should have nike doing not just sponsorship deals with with like if for example in the uk with footballers in it and when i say footballers i don't mean american football you know what i mean our football <laughs> yeah the real let's get past that one big, yeah? <laughs> before this turns into an international incident but like yeah but like yo you should have like nike doing sponsorship deals with just footballers and rappers and shit you should have nike doing sponsorship mm-hmm. deals with with writers like, and yo, you should have imagine that the Nike tick, and it would say, "Just read it." Like, yo, that's mm. the slogan. 
Like, seriously, yeah. like if you turn it, if you popularize literature in that way, the same way film, TV, everything, every other form of entertainment is popularized. It crosses boundaries in it. They intersect and everything. But literature is always like treated as if it's this not niche thing, but as if maybe either it's elitist or it's a little bit too away from from that popularity and that accessibility. It's like, yo, that those boundaries need to get broken down, man, because literature is just as relevant as every other form of 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 culture, in it. And the idea that like a writer, that's another thing as well. Like, why it's important to me. It's like the idea that a writer has to just be like a person who's like, I don't know, an anti-social person who stays in a dark little study, like writing, and that's all they do. And they don't they don't go and get lit on a Saturday night and they don't smoke weed and they don't like you know, they don't rock diamond grooves or whatever in it. That's a myth, in it? Like, writers can be cool people just as much as a rapper can be a cool person. And and if that was on the same playing field, you'd have more kids aspiring to, to being writers or aspiring to work within the publishing industry. And they could change it because then they would do cool and risky things and they wouldn't be part of this crowd that's so quick to find anything outside of their comfort zone offensive or problematic or whatever, you know, which is a huge restriction to art. Like so yeah, yeah man, I'm totally I'm totally behind that as a movement. Hey no nah, that is hey we we appreciate you brother that that's yes. the vision honestly because yes. um I mean we we I remember literally we had an episode of Patreon where we just looked up the definition of pop culture and started interrogating it. I don't know for how long but it was just so much fun to because because literally this this statement that is the title of our show is true. If you look at mm -hmm. the definition of pop culture and it lists like the sections, books are included. But would yeah. we know that based off how it carries it? No, we would not. Yeah. And, no. and we're just no, here to remind not. people, you know. Um, and and, and yeah. the last thing before I get to Achilles question is any good TV or film you've looked at recently. And when I say that, I'm also going to shout you out because. Who they was made a cameo on Sex in the City, I believe, at one point. Uh, yeah, 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 which was yeah. which was interesting. There was a fifteen second <laughs> shot of Sarah, bro. I didn't even know that. I didn't even know that was going to happen. Like <clears throat> they'd contacted me. I'd had some email forwarded to me from my editor in New York about how the show wanted to use my book as a prop. So when they said that, and I just had to like agree to it or whatever in it. When they said that, I just assumed this means that there's going to be a shot where like it's in the background on a bookshelf that, you know, for like a few seconds, you're just the mm -hmm. camera's just going to. Like, Yo, I didn't expect that there was going to be her reading my book in it. And what was funny was I was getting like messages from like my sister-in-law and and then like my PR in, in the UK. Like, yo, did you see your book was on Sex in the City? And I'm like, no. And I see the clip. Yo, that was <laughs> that funny man that shit was proper proper funny i slid right into sarah jessica parker's dms straight away like trust me right in her dms like yo do you want to grab a drink when i come to new york obviously i got air didn't like she never replied in it <laughs> probably because yeah. she never my message but yeah but now nah, but like yo that shit was funny in it but in terms of like in terms of things that i've seen recently like that I've that I've really loved, like Atlanta. I love Atlanta in it. Like that that TV show, I think is amazing. Like again, that is that thing of when an when a form of entertainment transcends just being simple entertainment and becomes art. And that's the difference between like TV show entertainment and art. Atlanta mm -hmm. is art, right? It is art, yeah. yeah. So you have yes. I can't think right now off the top of my head of like a TV show that 
because I don't really watch like anything that I don't think is bad. Oh, no, actually, I can, I can, you know what? I can make an easy comparison. Game of Thrones, entertainment, great entertainment, very entertaining, lots of entertaining stuff. Great way to pass the time. It's not art. Like it's I said earlier, yeah. I like dragons. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's great entertainment. Yeah, it's great entertainment. It's not art. Atlanta is art. Same way, True Detective, for example, the first season of True Detective, that is art. It transcends mm. that. And that's the same thing with writing. There's a difference between literature and writing. Writing, anyone can write. A journalist can write. Only a few people can really create literature, like serious literature, and therefore transcend that and turn something into, you know, a piece of writing into a work of art. Tell us who you would like to see as a guest on Books or Pop Culture. But this person has to be someone who you will be willing to help us connect with in the event that we may need some help getting connected. If right. I could see anyone on books or pop culture, get West Side Gun on, like, yo. Yo, <laughs> hey, that would be ill, though. Like, yo, get West hey, Side look. Gun. Like, you ask me, listen, listen, let me say this now, innit? You see with Gun, yeah? Like, there's only a few people that I'm actually, like, a fan of, you know? Like, in a real sense, a fan, where I'm, like, if I met them, I'd be like, oh, my days, innit? Like, and artists, when it comes to, like, specifically when it comes to... Um, when it comes to writers, I would say it's like the French writer Edouard Louis and Marlon James. Like those are like where I'd be like, "Oh shit!" Yeah, it, yeah. It's you, <laughs> you know yeah, the ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'm not impressed by people in that sense, in it. Like where, like, and no shade on them. I just mean like I'm just not. I don't see someone. I'm like, oh, he's famous or she's famous, and I'm like, whoa, like I'm so overwhelmed. It's like, yeah, cool, in it. Plenty of people are famous, in it. Plenty of dumb people are famous as well, you know. Um, yes, Lord. Yeah, but um, but yo, West Side Gun. Yeah, I really want to meet West Side Gun because I want to write a book about him. Like, I want to yeah. write a book about West Side Gun in it, real talk in it. Like, and I feel like I'm the writer who could do that, who could do it justice because I have the exact same concept of how everything you create should be art. Um, yeah. So I'd love to see yeah. West Side books or pop culture in it. That would be mad. Yeah. Listen, I'm down with that. I like uh, uh again. I, there's a lot of things I like. I remember one time Reggie, I, who were we talking to, Reggie? I think it might have been off air, but you was like, "So is is West Side Gun cool?" And both of us, yeah, were like, Moses. yes, yes, yeah. we was like, yes, uh -huh. that's yep. cool. <laughs> yeah, man, another yeah. another solid UK author too, man. Most yeah, McKinsey, yeah. Olive Grove, and Inns right behind us. I think yeah. I think you would like that book, Gabriel. I, do you know what I've I've got it still? I haven't got around to reading it, but it's one of the it's one of the few um, contemporary British books that I actually, when I saw it came out, I wanted to to check it out. So I will check it out. Went still. And and y'all y'all both have like the same view of what like literature is supposed to do. Like yeah. the the I, I'm gonna talk more about that off air, right? But I'm gonna just say. I, I would love to hear your thoughts on that, you know, just, you know, if and when you, you know, you get to it. Um, mm -hmm. But in the meantime, you know, we, I, of course, we overtime, we always do this, right? But anything yeah. you want to share with people in terms of how they can follow you on social media or just anything it, to look out for when it comes to your writing? Now, you can follow me on Insta, isn't it? It's at Gabriel.Krauser. That's it, at Gabriel.Krauser. You're just going to, if you follow me on Insta, you're going to see, like, a bunch of funny stories where I just talk shit about um, creators being pussies and, like, lots of photos <laughs> of iced out grills with my boys drinking $3,000 bottles of Louis 13 cognac in it. 
that's what you're gonna get. Erudite, like elevating experience, because I ain't here to give West you side gun would be proud. Yeah, all praises. The fly god would be all praises to fly god. Trust me, yo. Message as well for anyone who wants to be a writer and for anyone who wants to be an artist. Like, don't be scared in it. Take risks. That this is the most important thing is if you're gonna be a writer, take risks, and that means risks in every way. Be dangerous with what you decide to write about. Be dangerous with your opinions. Do not expect everyone to like you. And if you do want everyone to like you, do not expect to create art because art mm. is not the kind of thing that everybody is going to like in it. You are going to have haters, and you have to embrace that shit in it. And you just like just don't be shook of that. Like, don't be scared in it. Like, the most powerful thing that you can achieve as a writer or an artist is to provoke a reaction from people. If the only reaction you're provoking within people is just that, oh, they think it's really nice and it's really nice, that means you're not creating art. Like, so be brave, take risks and be fearless. That's my, my advice to anyone who wants to be a writer or an artist. Hey, nah, and that is that is a mic drop if I've ever heard one, man. Y'all y'all been listening to... Gabriel Krauser, you know, kick it with Achille and I on Books Pop Culture. Please get your copy of who they was from, you know, bookshop.org slash shop slash books of pop culture. Um, for Gabriel Krauser, for Achille Nazuri, I'm Reggie Bailey. This has been another edition of Books of Pop Culture, and y'all take care. <laughs>